I don't know if you've seen the movie, but The Sandlot addresses um, part of the theme that's emerging from this text. So the title on the wall, if some of, some of the angles can see it, but it says, Handle with Care. And sometimes we see people handling things in life, and it's obvious they don't know what they're handling. One of my fears is that I take the Bible and prove to everyone in the world that I don't have a clue what I'm handling. And sometimes you hear that. You hear people talk about a massive, awesome text, and then you leave going, I'm not so sure he understands how good that is. Right? That would be, that's my like nightmares. Like, people are like, yeah, he doesn't know anything about that. Um, so, in the Sandlot, you have this gang of boys, a good gang, just a, a group of boys playing baseball in a Sandlot. And they're in need of a ball. So, the new kid in the block tries to like prove himself, like, I belong here. Like, I got a ball. My dad has one in his office. And so, he plucks it from his dad's office. It was in like in a glass case, and they start playing with that ball. And everyone was having a good time until the ball was hit over the fence of uh, a man who had this really mean-looking dog, and the boys were scared. And the whole movie's about retrieving this ball because it emerges that the ball was no ordinary baseball. It was signed by Babe Ruth. And so they need to go get that ball, and that's how the whole movie goes, basically. But in that, in that movie, you see that you have this young lad who just thinks he's holding a baseball. I don't know, signed by some baby? He said something like that. He, he doesn't know what he's handling. And so they just play baseball with perhaps the most expensive baseball in the planet. Now, unfortunately, we as Christians are handling a very important topic. And I think we don't always know what we're handling. And so I want us tonight to handle this with care. And the topic we're talking about is heaven. Now, I think we do a good job with the good news, and we share that. But in my experience, and I'm definitely part of the experience, we, me, we have not done a good job at handling the topic of heaven. It's been misconstrued, it's been misunderstood, and it has not exactly been helpful to people in the ways that we communicate it or deal with it. So we're going to try to honor heaven for what the Bible tells us it is, rather than the visions we've been fed primarily from medieval Christ, uh, from medieval mythology uh, and some things that were made up during that time. So Isaiah brings it up, and we're going to look at it. So we left off in the middle of Isaiah 65, and we're going to pick up in... We're actually going to start with a few verses from last week because it sets the table for the verses this week. So Isaiah 65, verse 13 We ended last week with this. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Now the you there is referring to those who were ignoring God who was reaching out to his people. 
And he's like, look, everything fell upon you the way it did, the exile, because I was reaching out to you and you ignored me. And there's this warning about, for us, that look, when God returns, what side are you going to be on in his return? Are we going to be on the side that's constantly pushed him away or that has been reaching out to him? So, so he says, behold, my servants shall eat, but the rebels shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking a spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord Yahweh will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. That's where we stopped last week. Now, we look at that and we say, yeah, that's not exactly the case. God's servants aren't being rewarded and the rebels being punished. We aren't seeing that in the world. We're actually seeing much of the opposite, where it seems like the people of God get the bad end of the deal and the wicked continue to thrive. So, now Isaiah picks up that objection and says, yeah, but the day's coming. So, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Yahweh and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. Gotta love that signature at the end. John Hancock right there. But says Yahweh, it's happening. Now, this is why we haven't seen justice come to fruition yet, because justice is delayed. 
But the day is coming, he says, when I will make a new heaven and a new earth. And there, under this new system, justice will be served. So the good will be rewarded and the bad will be punished. The judge will come and say, all right, 10, 7.5, 4, 2. That is what judgment means. The judge will come. The king will come and he will put everything precisely where it needs to be. At the moment, though Jesus has ascended to the throne, the kingdoms of the world still exercise their own authority. That's the present heaven. Uh, That's the present earth, excuse me. But there's a time when Jesus will bring heaven and earth together and it will be new because it will be under new management. As Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those are synonymous terms. His kingdom and his will go together. His will happens where his kingdom is. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth. As it is in heaven. So at the moment, heaven is God's realm. Now, we usually think of it in spatial terms as up there. That's not the case. We don't know if heaven's up there. Besides, up for us is a different direction than China anyways. (laughs) Heaven is simply in an... One way to think of it is it's veiled. It's in our midst, but it's veiled. The way that God lived with Israel in his temple, but the Holy of Holies had a veil over it so that God was there, but nobody saw him. Nobody entered into his domain. So it is, heaven is God's Holy of Holies. Yet it is veiled in our midst. It's amongst us, but we cannot see it and we cannot enter it as we are. So heaven is, think of it not in a place of location, think of it as a realm about God's control. Heaven is wherever God is in control. Earth is wherever humans are in control. And at the moment, the two are not talking. The church becomes this little link between heaven and earth right now where the two are talking. That's what we are on this planet. We're that little slice where it's actually connecting, it's happening. And that's why the New Testament says that we are the temple of God. Because this is the one little place in the planet where heaven and earth are talking. Now, what Jesus is teaching us to pray is for the day when heaven and earth, God's realm, his will being done, and our realm, our will being done, are finally linked And as a byproduct, we see some of the things that will happen. So we see, verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth because right now it stinks. But when the two are reunited, it will be a new creation, a new work. And then look at the second half of 17. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, usually we think of that as meaning we won't have any rec- we won't have any recollection of our former lives. Um, at least when I was a kid, this is always how it was presented as I won't remember that I was a pastor. 
I won't remember that I lived in the fabulous Twin Peaks slash Lake Arrowhead slash Crestland slash Running Springs, California. I won't remember these things. I won't remember the fight I had with Ron, which I didn't actually have. I won't remember the jealousy I had. I won't remember the good works that I did. Or That's not exactly what that's saying. The former things refers to the way things used to be run. When the powers of governments and the powerful people in our midst sought to do things for self-gain and were willing to objectify other people, use them as tools, trample over, the way we see the world running, that won't be remembered anymore. There won't, in other words, within the humans of the new heaven and new earth, there won't be any software within us that says, ah, use all this for my gain. That won't exist. There will be a new operating system. So those things won't be recalled. They won't be remembered because everything will be new. Now, will some of the things we do now carry over to the new heavens and new earth? I'm going to actually get to that later if I don't get off track. So you have to remind me if I do. Um, Okay. So we see a few things here. Now, we have to remember that this is a prophet writing in poetry. And he is talking about things that he's never seen. So he's reaching for terms and images that we understand and throwing them out there to say, whatever the new heavens and new earth is like, it's kind of like this. But I don't know how literally we're to take some of these things, okay? For example, if you saw in verse 20, no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Okay, so you could take this and say, oh, there will be infants and none of them will die within the first few days of the new heavens and new earth. Okay, we don't know. We have no idea if there's going to be babies born in the new heavens and new earth. But what Isaiah is saying is that there aren't going to be senseless deaths in the new heavens and new earth. Because death will be swallowed up. Christ has already defeated death. Um, An old man, still in verse 20, an old man who does not fill out his days. Oh, there you are. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. So is there going to be death in the new heavens and new earth? No, it's possibly saying, look, can you imagine a hundred year old man walking around like, oh yeah, I feel like I'm 13. <laughs> or what? I feel like I'm 13. Um, <laughs> that would be a bad hundred years, wouldn't it? Isaiah, I, I don't know that Isaiah wants us to be like, oh, cool. So, okay, so like this is how it's going to work. He's just simply telling us Life will go on and on and on. And so think of being a thousand years old and like, I still feel like a spring chicken. All right. So building houses and um, planting vineyards. Um, yeah, I mean, are we going to eat? Are we going to be building things? These are all really good questions. The Bible is not always specific on. And again, Isaiah is reaching for metaphors to give us something like, it's going to be good. The version of this life, but better. And, of course, we're just reaching for metaphors here. But, notice in verse 25, you might have thought, wait, I thought we already read this verse. We did. Isaiah is repeating himself in verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. That, you may recall, was way back 
in Isaiah chapter 11. And there we had um, a vision of this, the new heavens and new earth, but those words weren't used yet in the prophecy. And so we see um, 11 verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. You wouldn't let your kid play with that right now. But then, snake, it's just a great plaything. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. But here, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Why is everything going to be changed? Because rather than the knowledge of God only belonging to a select few who happen to worship him, the knowledge of God is going to spread across the globe as water covers the sea. Now, I want you to think this through with me. The sea is covered by water 100%, right? There's no part of that that's not water. Water covering the sea, so shall the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth, 100%. The veil between heaven and earth will be lifted. And the holy of holies, where God's will is done, where his presence is, will not just be cornered. It will be from pole to pole, from sea to sea, all over. The world will become the holy of holies. That's what the new heavens and new earth looks like. And that's why... It will be the new heavens and the new earth because the two will finally be together as one. Now, this means that God's big plan is not to say, well, Satan won the earth. Let's scratch that plan and let's move on. Let's rescue my people from my good creation. That's not the goal. He's not trying to rescue us from creation to take us to heaven. He wants to bring heaven to us so that through us, he will rescue not only us, but the creation as well. So that there's not a single inch of the cosmos that Satan will still have his dirty little paws on. He's going to reclaim every atom, every molecule, every scrap inch of this planet and this universe that Satan has defiled. He's going to say, no more, you're judged, and I am going to reclaim this and repurpose this for that which it was originally made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, now we're going to have the new heavens and the new earth because it's going to be the way it was supposed to be. If, if God says, yeah, let's just ignore, this was just, this is too hard. Let's, let's just start, let's just take everyone out. We have basically said, all right, Satan got the victory. If Satan touches something, God will retreat. That's not the good news. That's really, really bad news. And so Isaiah is not accidental when he starts talking about new heavens and new earth. Now, 
New heavens and new earth is a tongueful. I get it. So what we've actually done is we've shorthanded new heavens and new earth with the term heaven. So we, we talk about going to heaven. We talk about the end goal being heaven. We talk about heaven, heaven, heaven. The Bible actually rarely uses the word heaven the way we use it. Paul will talk about going to be with the Lord. And we understand that God is in heaven, whatever that even looks like. So we short we shorten it with the word heaven. But the Bible uses the actual phrase, new heavens and new earth. And that is in Revelation chapter 21. When that, that climatic final vision of the entire Bible, and I'm going to show you the story here in a second on the whiteboard, but uh, John says, his final vision is this, John uh, Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Like Isaiah was saying, the former things will no longer be recalled. The old way of doing things passed away. And the sea was no more. Because it's from the sea that the beast arose. It's from the sea that Daniel, in chapter 7, saw his vision of the four terrible beasts which rip through God's people. That sea, that abyss of evil, no more. Satan no longer has a single atom in the universe. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Why a bride? Because the reunification of heaven and earth is a marriage. It's been a long and painful divorce, but they will be reunited. That's the biblical vision of heaven. Um, Now, you might be wondering, but wait a minute. I thought when I die, I go to heaven. So if you're telling me that heaven is the new heavens and new earth way at the very end of time, what in the world happens to Joe, whose funeral I just attended the other week? Where is he right now? He's not in heaven? What are you telling me? I'm telling you to calm down and don't let anxiety get the best of you. Breathe. Um, I've, I've actually unfortunately had the occurrence of sharing this with people, and there were some anxiety attacks going on. And I was like, no, 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 hold on. Not everything you've thought is wrong. Like, yes, there's a place to be with Christ now. If you are in Christ and you are a new creation, you will never be out of Christ, even in death. Um, eternity is not like over there. It's, think of it like time is within eternity. The universe is within the kingdom of God. These things are larger than all these things. And so when I die, I pass into wherever God is right now, reigning in heaven. I go there. But when he brings it to earth, I am with him. On the, if you remember last week, on the right side of history, if you will. The right side of that rider on the white horse. Um, so yes, there is something. It's not the ultimate heaven. So in others, Joe, and I'm just using their name Joe. I don't know a Joe, but I know a Joe, but not a Joe that died. Um, Joe, who died a few weeks ago, okay, he's in heaven, but he's not in the heaven that you and I are all destined for. That is the temporary place until Christ comes back. The ultimate heaven is going to be the united heavens and earth. That is our true hope, and that's what we're truly yearning for. That is where we will be embodied, the resurrection of our bodies on a real physical place. 
It was not Christians who taught us to hate the body. It was not Christians who taught us the soul leaving the body is a good thing. It's Christians who told us God took on a human body. That God showed us what a human body was made for as he walked on water and healed the sick and the lame and conquered an unruly beast, an unridden donkey, through a boisterous crowd. It is a true body that can make fish go into the nets of the fishermen who couldn't catch anything. So just try the other side. Oh, now they've got too many to even pull up. That's what a human body's for. Dominion over creation. And that's what we will have one day. So we are not, friends, we're not looking forward to the vanishing of materialism. Um, well, as a philosophy, yes, but no. The material world, God loved enough to become part of He made it, he entered it, and he's going to resurrect it. So, we have a lot to look forward to. And by the way, if you want to know where the ideas of like leaving a physical existence comes from, comes from, one, from an ancient Christian heresy, which still is very prevalent, called Gnosticism. And second, um, even before that, Plato sort of had the idea that um, there's a, grander non-physical place that we're trying to get to. So a new heavens and new earth. Okay. I love whiteboards. I never want it to feel like school, though, so I don't do this with you guys. But I love these things. Because you can actually erase things, unlike life. (laughs) Okay, so... Um, in the beginning, it's a star, God created the heavens and the earth. And with this creation, he had a purpose, a design, an intention that we, and making us on the sixth day to be with him, he made all of this good. And it tells us it was good, it was good, it was good. And at the end, he looks upon it and kicks up his feet, and it says he rested, and he says he saw that it was very good. And he wanted heaven and earth to live together, humans and God to live together forever and ever and ever. And he gave us a really good rule. It says that he made us, in Genesis 1, he made us in the image of God. And then it defines what it means to be made in the image of God by saying, look, in the way he's a king and created everything, it says, I want them to have dominion. That's rulership. That's authority and power over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the land, and the vegetation. And it lists the, the, the components of creation that humanity, man and woman together were to rule over this. And this was going to go, who knows what would have happened if this kept going past page three of our Bibles? Who knows? What would creation be able to do? What would we make with it? If we think the things that America's produced is pretty impressive, and it is, we're doing this in a fallen world. What could humans have done when they were like Jesus and had mastery over creation? Well, we'll get to know one day. But... Unfortunately, the story was broken, and this happy, happy storyline was shattered because we decided this word sin. We decided we've got this on our own. 
we're going to take care of things. And we've talked about this even in Isaiah, how we became our own idols. We began to worship other idols. We began to worship the creation. And by praising and worshiping the stuff, we gave our dominion, our power to it. And now it's mastering us. And this is what sin is. It's, it's our struggle to even be genuine, made in the image of God, humans. And so Cain kills Abel. It's the very first thing we see after we've sinned. Cain kills Abel and um, Cain marries um, No, his descendants marry multiple wives and they begin to make things. And the first city, he makes cities and we see that the first city, civilization, is built upon the blood of the innocent. And so because of our sin, we go in this downward spiral. We're sinking downward. So what we have is, in the beginning was creation and it was good. But now what we're in the midst of is de-creation. We, human beings, given charge of the creation, have flipped the script, and we're actually destroying it. And I don't just mean, like, I'm not just going off on, like, a a gas, a green, what am I trying to say, emissions and global warming and climate change, like, not... Not just that kind of decreating the world, but I mean, we're decreating how we treat each other. We're decreating God's purposes for the planet. And so people who begin to worship sex begin to define themselves in terms of sexuality. And this is what I do, and this is who I sleep with, and this is my identity, and this is my preference. And then as they develop their own identity in the image of the sex god, they began to see human beings and their neighbors as objects for sex. Same thing with money. People who begin to worship the idol of money begin to define themselves by their wealth, by their possessions, and then they project that upon their neighbor. No longer people the image of God, but they're now, what can I get out of them? How can I use them? What kind of um, client or profit or investment is this person to me? Same thing with power. You begin to define yourself by power. And then you begin to see other people as those that you can rule over or those that you need to climb on top of in order to get more power. The idols of this world are reshaping us. They're decreating us and they're decreating the creation around us. And that's the world we live in. And it gets darker and darker. And yeah, there's moments of hope. Like, oh, Abraham is called out of the mess of the Tower of Babel. Abraham is called out and Israel is like, there's hope. But then, nope, they're in slavery in Egypt. And oh, King David's leading the kingdom toward God. And nope, a few kings later, they're in exile. And Israel even, the hope of the world, goes all the way down. So this is basically much of the Old Testament. We're on a downhill slide. Decreation. Everything that God wanted is being reversed. The light he spoke on day one, darkness is coming back into power. But the story changes with the name Jesus. Finally, we come to the New Testament and we find this human who behaves very differently than most humans, who thinks of himself very differently than most humans, who begins calling out the idolatries around the other humans, and he begins living like a human at the beginning. He's got this mastery over creation. What is this? He's talking about being a servant. He's putting others before himself. And the decreation that is all around him, he reverses. The blind... Blindness is a decreated form of the vision God gave us. But he reverses that blindness and gives people sight. 
The lame, he gives them the strength to walk again. The mute are able to talk. Uh, the aspects of creation, he's able to control, like the fish, like the donkey, like diseases. Even demons now are listening to this human. Because what has happened is, God has come down out of in all this mess and met with us. He came to the bottom of the story. He came to us when we're at our worst. And when the creation killed the creator, we saw the ultimate expression of de-creation. You do not, you cannot outdo creation killing the creator. I don't know how, I'm trying to say this and I can't say it. You don't get more decreation than the creation killing the creator. That's the ultimate expression of decreation. We are at the absolute worst of history of human behavior when the creator is killed on the cross. But three days later, the creator comes out of the tomb. And now he's in where we were told in the Bible is his resurrection. Resurrection is not simply someone was dead and came back to life. Jesus did that to a little girl. He did that to Lazarus. But they came back in normal bodies and they died again. Resurrection is not just coming back from the dead. Resurrection is our theological term for Jesus coming not back to life, but he's bringing the future life to the present in this moment. Jesus brings the bodies and the creation that we will one day have. He brings that as if it's a movie preview, a trailer for a coming movie. He says, look, you want to know where history is going? Because it just reached rock bottom when the creation killed the creator. Where's it going now? I'll show you where it's going. It's going back to where we started. I am giving you now a new path of recreation. And so when Jesus comes out of the grave, he is a new creation. And he is bringing followers to join him. And what he sends them out into the world to do is to reverse the effects of decreation and sin. And to rather practice recreating what we've lost. So go and bear fruit, Paul says. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These fruits are because Eden had fruits. We are in a world of hatred, division, violence, sexuality. We are bringing love and joy and peace and so forth. We don't have those bodies right now, but we've been given the Holy Spirit and he's pushing us forward to be agents of what's to come. So creation, decreation, Jesus, recreation. And now, as Isaiah is telling us, there is the new heavens and new earth, which I always shorthand as new creation. New creations where we're headed. And this, what, this is what God had intended. But we're finally, after our detour, God rescues us and turns us around toward recreation. And one day, new creation. Here's the challenge. We are somewhere, somewhere in this big old line 
It's like a V, right? Down and up. We're somewhere on the upside. We don't know where. We could be in the very middle of it. We could be really close to the new creation. Or we could be like really right after Jesus' resurrection. We don't know. And that's the agony. Is that Jesus told his questioning disciples, look, I don't even know, so lay off. Only the Father knows. But we're somewhere. Okay, but here's what we need to see. Um, Actually, you know, we're going to come back to this. And let's keep going in our text. Chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. So, in other words, look, if heaven is my throne and the earth is my mere footstool, (laughs) um, what in the world are you going to give to me that I can rest in? What temple will be good enough for me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But, middle of verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Wait a minute. It doesn't exactly say this, but there is a huge implication here. You cannot give me or build anything for me that I will rest in because, frankly, I own everything. I don't need it. But then he says, but there's a certain kind of person who's humble and contrite and heart. Doesn't quite say I will dwell there, but it's implied. That person is the place of my rest. This, by the way, is part of the New Testament's understanding that we are the temple of God. That he no longer needs the building in Jerusalem. He needs the people who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. And he's in their midst. Now, um, as homework tonight, you can go read Acts chapter 7. Because Stephen actually, do you remember Stephen when he was killed by the, by the, uh, by the um, Sanhedrin, the, the religious rulers of Jerusalem? He's the first Christian to die, the first Christian martyr. And Stephen actually, at the climax of his sermon before them, he quotes what we just read. And right after he reads it, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom have now, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, he sure ended with a bang, and they killed him. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he quotes this passage in Isaiah. So what you need to see is that Stephen was accused of saying that Jews no longer need the temple of God or the law of Moses. Like, oh, really? So the Sanhedrin rings him up, like, what did you say? And then he launches into a very long sermon. This is what you might want to read tonight on your own. He begins to tell them, as if they didn't know, the history of Israel. 
It's like, oh, okay, you don't really understand what I'm saying, that we don't need the temple? Well, here's a little History 101 for you religious leaders. Remember Abraham? God met him. Where was the temple? Where was Moses' law? That's right. It's before all that. And God met a person. Then he goes on and talks about um, how Joseph, he was with Joseph, even when Joseph was thrown into prison. Where was the temple, huh? Did Joseph meet God in the temple? Nope, God was with him. And then he talks about how Moses delivered Israel and how... um, then in the, and God was obviously with him there. Then in the wilderness, they build him a little tent. And then finally, they end up making a bigger temple with Solomon. And then that's when he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 1, and says, Look, God didn't need Solomon's temple. Because what does God need that he doesn't already have? Then he tells them, you guys don't get it. You are worshiping the temple, not the God in the temple. And that's why they kill him. What we see Stephen dies for is the early church's understanding that God no longer is in a building, but he's now in people who are willing to let him in their lives. We have become the temple, which is to say, brothers and sisters, that as Jesus was God and man in one, as he was heaven and earth in one, he has given the church the same identity. God living with humans, heaven and earth, learning how to walk in heaven on earth. That's why this is uphill, because it's hard. Yeah? Now, um, you go forward and he begins to accuse, you can hear why the Sanhedrin was mad at Stephen, because though Stephen doesn't read all this, they know what follows because they know their Bibles. It goes and rails against those who are super religious and says in verse 3, he who slaughters an ox, an offering, is like one who kills a man. <laughs> oh, so your worship is like murder to me. And it goes on and says how awful that is. And God basically calls him to return. But then in verse 7, 66 verse 7, before she was in labor, this is talking about Jerusalem now, so John in Revelation calls it the New Jerusalem. So you can, you can read this as the same thing. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I, God speaking, shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says Yahweh. Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God. Look, I'm going to bring this birth about in an instant. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Babies don't come out that quick. There's labor pains. Nations aren't born that quick. Kingdoms aren't founded that quick. But when Jesus returns, in other words, when Jesus returns, the new heaven and new earth will come suddenly. Who has heard of such a thing? Nobody. That's why it's new. So then verse 10, the command, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you mourn, all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. The new Jerusalem will nurture us into the new world. But in verse 15, the warning. For behold, Yahweh will come in fire, 
and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire, Yahweh will enter into judgment and by his sword will with all flesh and those slain by Yahweh will be many. And then verse 17 goes on to name basically all the idolaters are the ones who are going to suffer. Fire is coming. So, we looked at this beautiful story, but as agents of free will who have choice to worship who and what we want, there's an alternative ending to this story. And in the midst of our recreation, trying to walk with Jesus and set the world, um, be an example of setting the world right as we go toward the new creation, others may continue on this path of Jesus, and now they may continue in their decreation. And they may stay there forever if they'd like. So if you want to continue to define yourself by sex, by power, by money, and define others around you by the same idols, yeah, there's a path for that. And notice, this slide is easy. And you don't even have to try to stay here. You just keep cruising through life. Yep, that's right where you are. But God gives us the Holy Spirit to climb, to fight the good fight, to run the race, to practice what the Bible calls sanctification, the transformation of my character to be like God's. He te- it teaches us to pray so that we learn God's will above our own will. It teaches us how to worship. It gives us the Bible so that we can begin to learn to walk in a way that's contrary to our fallen selves. We just want to keep sliding and coasting on. But Christianity is calling us Keep going, soldier. Keep going. Because of the new creation. So we have been given this new creation to handle. It's in our midst. It's in our midst. In verse 18, there's a call to go gather the scattered nations and that they will come to Jerusalem Isaiah started that with chapter 2, by the way. You can see chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, all the nations coming to Jerusalem. And it seems to be a vision of what's actually happening now through the church as we are bringing um, people to Christ. Because look at verse 21. This is how it ends. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says Yahweh. All the Gentiles that are being gathered, I will let them be priests and Levites. Something only Jews could be. What? And that's where the New Testament tells us we're the temple. So we are the priests. And Peter tells us that we are a nation of priests. And Revelation says that we are a royal priesthood. We are priests. We are part of this way, this path toward the new creation. Okay, and now it ends with this in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain. It's going to be no end to this kingdom. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abomination to all flesh. 
It's a big rot pile. And there it is forever and ever. Um, judgment is praised in the Bible. Yet we don't like that part of judgment. It's gross. It's gnarly. But consider, if we're to, be, if we're to get to a new creation... We have to exile, or God has to exile those who are doing everything they can to keep it a decreation. There's only one way to do it. And so God gives all the choice. And those that don't want anything to do with his new heavens and new earth, well, there's a plan for you. If you want to continue in the ways of decreation, great, the worm is for you. That's decreation. And you can continue to decreate yourself all you want. One scholar, N.T. Wright, pictures it like this. He says um, that basically you will continue to become like the idol you worship until there is no human left to pity or to have mercy on. You won't even be recognized as something made in the image of God because you will so give that away to the things you worship. That's the picture of just becoming food for worms. There won't even be anything left to pity. So what do we do? <laughs> I always love like these messages of heaven. It's like they, they, they ramp you up, like they get you excited, but what do you do with it? What do, you, do we just sit here and go, all right, cool, come, Lord Jesus, come. No, we get busy. <laughs> we get busy. So we wait and we get busy. Because on one hand, Jesus is the one who brings the new creation. We don't make it happen. But on the other hand, Everything we do from now till then matters. Because God isn't setting this up like a trash heap on fire. He's resurrecting it. And there's reason to believe that the things we do today will have carryover in the new heavens and the new earth. It says he's coming in fire. We know that Peter talks about fire coming. Second Peter chapter 3. And it, it, let's close at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There Paul talks about fire. Isaiah talked about his coming with fire. And this is the confusing thing, is we often think of and hear of that fire as being, okay, what does it matter this life anyways? It's all going to burn. You hear that all the time. And you're right. If it's all going to burn, why weed the weeds out of the rose garden? There's absolutely no point. Why care about my neighbor if it's all going to burn? Why care about slavery if it's all going to burn? What we misunderstand is that fire works two ways. Fire doesn't just burn things down. It also builds things up. Go all the way back to the burning bush. That bush was on fire, yet it was not destroyed. That bush was more alive and alive in a way it never was alive before. Because God was in it with fire. That same fire goes to Mount Sinai. That same fire goes into the temple. That same fire came upon the disciples as they were praying on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said would baptize us with fire, comes upon them. Fire doesn't just destroy, it cleanses, it builds stuff up. And so when God's fire descends, when he comes with his fire, it will do one of two things. It will burn some things away, those things that need not remain, because it's going to be a new heaven and new earth. 
But then the fire that will build things up as gold is built up when it is put in a furnace. The fire will come and do one of two things. And here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Paul is talking about building for the kingdom of God. Not building it like we make the new creation come, but building for it. God's the architect, but yet every architect needs someone to lay the tile work. I'm not building this building. I'm just a part of building for what the architect wants. Paul talks about that. So I'm laying a foundation, but others are going to come and do their part. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, 4. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day that we were reading about in Isaiah is coming. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So what am I doing today? What are, as I'm on this recreation path, what are my acts? What kind of a person am I becoming? The things that you're like, oh, he's a pastor. He must be great. Uh, what if I'm just up here with full of a bunch of wood, hay and stubble? The fire will let you know. The precious stones, gold and precious and stone, that's hard work. You have to mine that. You have to, it's heavy. It's hard work to go find that. You'll find wood, hay, and stubble anywhere. There's a ton of it that you have to weed whack and everything. That takes no effort. That's just coasting. We don't always know who is what, but the fire will reveal it. So where am I? Verse 14. Yeah, the fire will reveal what work each one has done. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives the fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Okay. So does it matter right now how we're walking in the recreation phase? Yes, because every act of recreation that I am putting forth in this world will be refined in the next world. It will pass through the fire. But every single deed of decreation I do, every selfish thing I do, everything that's like, oh, I'm just going to cruise through life, that's going to be burned away. And Paul says, yeah, that person might make, if you're a Christian, you're going to make it, but there's not going to be much of your former life left in the new life. You're going to be that beggar. And the new heaven and new earth with not much there. Friends, isn't it cool that what God is inviting us to do is be part of the building of his new heaven and new earth? So that when he comes, Mike might have all, he might have a whole orchard from his works, like the Mike orchard. And Ron might have a whole city. And Brandon might have a, weed field or something. But God's inviting us to build for that. So, brothers and sisters, we must ask, what are we here? If, if, if the whole point is to go to heaven, why are we still here? We're still here because God 
has gathered us as co-laborers, like he did at the beginning, to help build his new world. And when Jesus comes back, we will get to marvel at the things that will remain from what we've done here. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us your son who has turned this whole story around. We were headed.